Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 17, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Today we're going to take up uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now chapter 12 dealt with the Lord's command for Israel to uproot and destroy every vestige of... Um, the Canaanite mystery religions that were present in the land of promise. And Israel was to make no compromises, not to accept any treaties that permitted these Canaanites who were resident to this area to continue with the worship of their false gods. Why? Because first, these practices, even though a certain, in a certain sense they were permitted for pagans, were abominable to Yehovah. And second, because such perverted observances were dangerous for Israel. Because the Israelites could easily become ensnared in tempting these tempting and attractive pagan celebrations. Now the danger was so great that for Israel to do such a thing would involve severe retribution from God, even going so far at times as to end in a permanent separation from him for some individuals. Therefore, chapter 13 is the natural extension of chapter 12 because 13 declares what it is that's to happen to anyone who tries to reestablish the multiple God worship that Yehovah is in the process of stamping out. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we're going to read that chapter. That is on page 212 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Everything I am commanding you, you are to take care to do. Do not add to it, do not subtract from it. Now, if a prophet or someone who gets messages while dreaming arises among you and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes about as he predicted when he said, let's follow other gods which you have not known, and let's serve them, then you're not to listen to what that prophet or dreamer says. For Adonai, your God is testing you in order to find out whether you really do love Adonai, your God, with all your heart. In your being. You're to follow Adonai your God, fear him, obey his mitzvot, his commands, listen to what he says, serve him, and cling to him. And that prophet or dreamer is to be put to death, because he urged rebellion against Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from a life of slavery, in order to seduce you away from the path Adonai your God has ordered you to follow. This is how you're to rid your community of this wickedness. Now, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife, whom you love, or your friend, who means as much to you as yourself, secretly tries to entice you to go and serve other gods, which you haven't known, neither you nor your ancestors, gods of the people surrounding you, whether near or far away from you, anywhere in the world, you are not to consent and you're not to listen to him. And you must not pity him or spare him, and you may not, may not conceal him. Rather, you must kill him. 
Your own hand must be the first one on him in putting him to death. And afterwards, the hands of all the people. You're to stone him to death. Because he has tried to draw you away from Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a life of slavery. Then all Israel will hear about it. They'll be afraid. So that they will stop doing such wickedness as this among themselves. Now, if you hear it told that in one of your cities, which Adonai, your God, is giving you to live in, that certain scoundrels have sprung up among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city by saying, let's go and serve other gods which you haven't known. Then you are to investigate the matter, inquiring and searching diligently. Now, if the rumor is true, if it is confirmed that such detestable things are being done among you, you must put the inhabitants of that city to death with the sword, destroying it completely with the sword. Everything in it, including its livestock. Heap all of its spoils in an open place. Burn the city with its spoils to the ground for Adonai your God. It will remain a tell forever and not be built again. None of what has been set apart for destruction is to stay in your hands. Then Adonai will turn from his fierce anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and increase your numbers, just as he swore to your ancestors. Provided you listen to what Adonai says and obey all of his commands that I'm giving you today, thus doing what Adonai your God sees as right. Verse 1 is a product warning label. It's kind of a divine mattress tag that's never to be removed. And the warning is very plain and simple. What I, the Lord, am telling you to do, do. And don't ever abolish any of these principles and don't you ever add any more. And the Lord God has given the ways of worshiping him that are acceptable to him. Now, should the Israelites choose to add some of the pagan Canaanite worship practices to their worship of Yehovah, this is obedient, disobedience and sin at the highest level. It amounts to idolatry and unfaithfulness. Now, this short, terse verse seems so repetitive and simplistic, yet in reality, it's at the heart of what would plague Israel and eventually the church to this very day. As we carefully read the later books of the Old Testament and learn about the idolatrous practices of many Hebrews in, in mixing in the worship of these other gods, it was rare that worship of Jehovah was, was abandoned and replaced with these new gods. Rather, it was more usual that Israel simply added some of those pagan traditions to their worship of the Lord, and just as usual, added the worship of some pagan gods alongside the worship of Yehovah. They simply mixed and matched to please themselves and, and to, to show tolerance to their pagan neighbors was part of the purpose. And then... They declared that since it was in the name of God Almighty, it was all just okay. See, there were a number of ways in which this abomination could come about 
And in chapter 13, we get a set of three of those ways. And it has to do with individual Israelites who entice their brethren away from pure worship and towards apostasy. And we're given three examples of common ways that a Hebrew might lead others astray. Now, first is whereby a man claims his allegiance to God. He publicly says he has received a word or a vision from the Lord. And he's even given, he's even able to give a visible sign that comes true to prove that what he prophesies is authentically from God. Second is the case of a close relative or a friend, in essence a family member, who in private and in secret tries to get other family members to accept some of those forbidden gods. And third is where a man has prophesied something as from the Lord and successfully gets the inhabitants of an entire village or city to adopt some form of pagan traditions or perhaps some pagan gods. Now, this isn't meant to exhaust all the possible ways for people to be led astray by false prophets. It is but the more common everyday ways that are bound to occur with with, with regular frequency in such a large population as Israel that will be living amongst these several Canaanite nations who have no intention of giving up their gods for Israel's God. Now what's important to understand is that each of these cases applies to the modern body of Messiah just as much as it did to ancient Israel. Now the first case starts in verse 2. And it ends in verse 6 or 7 depending on your Bible version. And it tells of a person who is regarded as a prophet or, or, or some perhaps someone who has visions, dreams. And who is difficult to refute because he claims to be a prophet of Yehovah. And what he offers as proof, a sign of his ability to see the future as revealed by the Lord, seems to come true. The problem is that this person who claims allegiance to God says that God himself has told him that Israel should bow down to other gods as well. Now, this may sound pretty odd to us, but to anyone living in that era, this was pretty normal. Okay, recall that one of the titles that we'll find in the Old Testament for Yehovah is El, El. And El is a title that originated from the Canaanite mystery religions that denotes the chief god. Okay, the highest god who rules over the pantheon of lesser gods and goddesses. And it was common that a, a, a prophet of El, in whatever culture it might be happening, would announce that El has decided that his people are to add this particular god or goddess to their worship. And since all the lesser gods and goddesses were under the authority of El, this was in no way abandoning the worship of El, the highest god. It was simply saying that one of the countless numbers of lesser gods who reported to El 
was now to play a role in this particular culture's worship practices. So the idea is to follow other gods in addition to El. And the Hebrews were very comfortable with that idea. Now let's be clear. God did communicate to his people in ancient times by means of his prophets and through those who had visions. In general, these were two different categories. See, the prophets were professionals. Prophets were often ordained as prophets, and even if they were not, they were recognized de facto as God's prophets. They were even supported financially by the community. So it's not as though a person would just kind of pop up and declare he was a prophet. Rather, it was a recognized and somewhat earned position. A person who had visions, generally speaking, was not a professional. But rather, they were a lay person. It could be a person who found favor with the Lord, and so the Lord gave them these divine dreams. Or it could be a religious authority, perhaps, who had received a special revelation from time to time in a dream. At times, a prophet might receive his word from the Lord via a dream or a vision. So so these words are simply lumping both possibilities together and saying, do not listen to anyone, no matter how accurate their prophecies might be, if they also also advocate worshiping other gods. And in verse 4, the Lord says, the reason that he allows these false prophets to know the future, all the while that prophet is trying to lead his people astray, is to test them. To test his people. To see who will obey God and who won't. Now the key here is that any prophet or dream interpreter who suggests following other gods or adopting some element of pagan worship is not to be listened to. Because the very suggestion that prophet is making is the indication that he is a liar and he is evil. Instead, the people are to reject that prophet or dream diviner and even put him to death. Now, notice something important. Boy, this plays a role in our time. The test of whether a prophet is false is not whether or not he's correct. It's, it isn't even whether or not he claims that he's a follower of God. Rather, it is that what he prophesies is in tune with God's written laws and commandments. Think back to when we studied Moses confronting Pharaoh. Okay. God gave Moses a whole series of signs and wonders to prove that he was the Lord's authorized spokesperson. However, in many of those cases, Pharaoh's sorcerers were equally able to perform similar signs. So, which was to be believed? Certainly in a head-to-head battle, the Lord's signs overcame the Egyptians' magicians' signs, like when Moses staff turned into that serpent and ate their serpents. 
But the magician's signs were very real, nonetheless. A false prophet can display supernatural ability. So we have to be very discerning. How do we discern? Well, without God's written word, it's impossible. The word gives us the truth so that we can then go and compare what we experience against it in order to know what is and what is not of the Holy Spirit. Now, in some ways, this problem sounds kind of ancient and primitive, but in fact, it has corrupted Judeo-Christianity to our core. And it began with the false doctrine that the Old Testament was dead and gone and that we should not look to it for God's principles, patterns, truth. What better way for the enemy to deceive the church than to convince us to discard the very document given to us from our Creator as our roadmap for harmonious and victorious living and instead have us turn to very pious-sounding but air-filled doctrines contrived by the minds of denominational leadership, theologians, and religious philosophers. The church has done the very thing we were warned here not to do. Do not subtract. Do not add to the Word of God. My goodness, the church has officially abolished two-thirds of God's Word. Our Savior Yeshua warned us against this during His Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew 5. But by means of allegory and not a little bit of anti-Semitism. That is what we have done. And it has caused us the greatest confusion and done us the worst harm, exactly as it did to those ancient Hebrews. See, the consequence for being a false prophet then is announced in verse 6. He's to be executed. Now, is this execution punishment per se? Actually, it's less a matter of punishment and more a matter of what it says at the end of that same verse. This is how you're to rid your community of wickedness. Think about that statement. It's how you get rid of it. Boy, as the world supposedly developed and civilized and intellectualized societies managed to turn that principle on its head. Getting rid of a person who commits heinously evil acts. Once and for all, evil is defined by God. Is a benefit and it's a protection for the community at large. Because it gets rid of the evil. Now the whole thing has been turned upside down. And the so-called law of love doctrine is wrongly applied. And the murderers and the violent offenders are to be shown mercy and tolerance with the result that evil is allowed to remain and infect others. Next up in Deuteronomy, second example is the case of a family member 
privately trying to entice another family member to serve other gods which you have not known. Now this is referring to a very close family member who's doing the enticing. Because we are given specific relations in descending order of importance, at least for that era. First is the brother. But because it was very usual for a man to have more than one wife and even a concubine or two thrown in there as well. And therefore for a son to have several half-brothers. This makes clear that this is referring to a full brother. Same mother, same father. Okay, The closest sibling relationship possible. Second in importance to that is one's son, after that one's daughter, after that one's wife, and then after that a very close and trusted friend. So the idea is that when a close family member approaches another family member with the suggestion to include the worship of other gods, that family member that was approached with this illegal suggestion might just be tempted to ignore it or cover it up and not do what God has ordained be done. Execute the instigator. Therefore, we're told in verse 9 that in addition to not consenting to such a thing, not even if that family member is your own mother or someone in that family that's an authority over you, you're not to pity them, you're not to obey them, you're not to follow them, but you're also not to conceal them. In other words, don't protect them from what might, uh, what is rightfully the consequence for what they're trying to do. Instead, the family must kill that family member who's trying to entice the others into idolatry. Now, the reason for this drastic action is stated in verse 12. Then all Israel will be afraid. Then they will stop doing such wickedness as this among themselves. The means of executing that person is also prescribed. Stoning. See, here's the thing. The idea of stoning a person to death is that everyone in the community is to participate in this. No nice, clean, sterile, behind-closed-doors executions in the Bible days. By everybody in the community participating, it indicates that community's consensual agreement to reject the evil and sin that that person committed. Therefore, what is being stated in these verses is not that without trial, a father is to drag his son or wife outside the camp and then stone him to death if that son or wife suggests the family worship of the gods. Rather, they're to turn them in to the proper authorities, bring them up for trial, and then they're to act as a witness. And then if that person is convicted, they're to follow God's law that the witness is to be the first to throw a stone of execution. And then the rest of the community joins in to finish the job. Pretty severe. The God principle here is clear. Our obligation of obedience to God and His commandments is above any allegiance 
to our closest family members, even our parents, our spouses, our children. You know, when faced with the terrible choice of committing blatant evil in God's eyes or maintaining a relationship with that fallen family member, the instruction is one is to turn their back, if necessary, on the family member in order to remain faithful to the Lord. This, as all other Torah principles, certainly wasn't abolished by Yeshua. Because Jesus says this in Luke 14.26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now hopefully you can detect that just as in our day, teachers and preachers of God will use some degree of hyperbole to bring, bring home a point. And that's what Christ was doing here. He was not suggesting that upon accepting him, we're to develop an active hatred for our family. He have, is of course not stating that loving him means automatic rejection of our family. Rather, it is that if he calls upon us and our family says we must choose between following Messiah and remaining in good stead with our family, we are to choose to follow Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. I, uh, very fortunately, very fortunately, did not have to make that kind of a heartbreaking choice when I came to the Lord. But many have had to make this heartbreaking, life-changing kind of decision, including most Jews who have accepted their own Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. It's cost them a lot. Now the final example, a third example, is given when a person attempts to subvert an entire population center by encouraging them as a community or as a congregation to fall away from the Lord by worshiping false gods or adding some element of paganism to our observances. In fact, the case here in Deuteronomy 13 is of an Israelite town where it's already happened. It is interesting that the point I just made about there necessarily being a trial to determine the guilt or innocence of the accused idolater is raised here. The consequence is that the entire community has succumbed to this apostasy, not only just the instigators. There, they face execution as well. Now the fellows who started the trouble, here in the complete Jewish Bible called scoundrels and other versions, other Bibles called base fellows, a number of different names are used in the English translation, is literally in Hebrew, B'nai Belial, which means children or sons of Belial. Belial means worthless or useless. Um, folks like murderers and rapists that do nothing but do harm and incite trouble. So most literally, this calls the instigators of this mass idolatry as sons of worthlessness. So scoundrel is a pretty good translation. Now there's a couple of places in the Bible where we'll, we'll again run across this word, Belial. And sometimes it's 
used as a proper noun, a formal name. Um, Satan, for instance, is often used as a formal name even though the word means adversary. When Belial is used as a proper name, it is much in the same way we might call the devil the evil one. The evil one isn't really a, a formal name for the devil. It's just a literary device whereby we take a general title and assign it to a certain person who is said to bear that attribute. And it becomes in a kind of poetic fashion an alternative proper name, if you would. Now we find the term Belial in the New Testament as well as the Old. 2 Corinthians 6.15 Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So from the Old Testament, we now learn what that New Testament passage means. It means, of what harmony has Christ with sons of worthlessness? Scoundrels, antisocial criminals. Now as the final judgment for the crime of idolatry... that the entire community participated in, okay, that town, the buildings, are to be destroyed. And the ruins of the town are never to be built on again. The Hebrew word used here for the heap or the ruins of the town is tell. T-E-L. And those who've been to Israel have, been, have seen many tells. Right? Because a tell is just where a series of cities have been rebuilt each upon the ruins of the previous city. Often as many as 15 or 20 times. In fact, the word heap or mound well describes it. Because although the original city was usually built at the ground level, the same ground level as what surrounded it, over the centuries the cycle of destruction and rebuilding literally creates a mound which which seems to grow out of nowhere. Okay? Now, in addition to burning the buildings, the spoils of the city, these personal items that are usually confiscated and given to the military commander or the king, they're to be piled high, we're told, and burnt with fire. This is called harem, H-E-R-E-M, or the law of harem, H-E-R-E-M. The idea is... Because the Lord has ordered the destruction of the town due to his divine wrath being poured out upon it, this was a sacred and holy act. So just as a sacrificial animal is to be completely burnt up on the altar and all of it thereby given to God, so are all the town's spoils to be burnt up symbolically giving it to God. Now the last two verses explain that the reason for destroying the town is that God's anger is against all Israel for the act of this one rebellious town turning to apostasy. And his anger will not be satisfied until his instruction to destroy that town, the town's people, and everything in it is accomplished. Only then will he bring his favor back upon the nation of Israel. Such is the seriousness of committing adultery against the Lord. There just doesn't exist any higher crime 
against His holiness than for one who purports to be in union with Him to willingly seek out and come into union with evil. In this case, false gods. Let's move on to chapter 14. We're just going to read the first eight verses tonight. Chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. You are the people of Adonai, your God. You are not to gash yourselves or shave the hair above your foreheads in mourning for the dead, because you are a people set apart as holy for Adonai, your God. Adonai, your God, has chosen you to be his own unique treasure out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. You are not to eat anything disgusting. The animals which you may eat are ox, sheep, goat, deer, gazelle, roebuck, ibex, antelope, oryx, mountain sheep, any animal that has a separate hoof that is completely divided and also chews the cud, these animals you may eat. But you, but you are not to eat those that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof. For example, the camel, the hare, the coney, are all unclean for you because they chew the cud but they don't have a separate hoof. While the pig is unclean for you because, although it has a separate hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. You are not to eat meat from these or even touch their carcasses. Stop there. Now this chapter begins with a most personal comment from the Lord. I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that the Bible makes it clear that in the eyes of God, you are whomever you identify yourself with. Moms and dads, boy, do you know that about your kids, don't you? You are whoever you identify yourself with. This was expressed in the previous chapter using the term Bene Belial, sons of worthlessness, scoundrels, who the Lord identifies as evil people who are opposed to him. Now at the opposite end of the spectrum are the words that begin Deuteronomy chapter 14. There God says that Israel is Bene Yehoveh, the sons of Yehoveh. The Lord identifies the Hebrews as a holy people attached to him. And, says the Lord, as such, you are not to have mourning rituals like the Canaanite pagans, the B'nai Belial, have. Now, we're going to find that several specific rituals and practices of the Canaanites are prohibited for Israel simply because the Canaanites do them. Okay, generally speaking, that's why this command against uh, Israelites shaving their heads, right, males of course, and slashing themselves so that they, they, they bleed as a custom for mourning the dead is not allowed. Okay, those types of acts were known throughout the Middle East and most of the known world, but the Lord says his people aren't to do these kinds of things because they're a holy people set apart for him. Now, one of the principles behind God's holiness is that holy things offered to him must be without defect. 
Therefore, animals that are to be sacrificed to him on the brazen altar must not have blemishes or scars. They can't be sickly or weak. Rather, they have to be the best. Perfect. No defects. This even carries over to the priesthood. Because priests who serve the Lord can't have any physical deformity, like a missing finger, or a large scar, or a burn mark, or, or even can they be born with some kind of a birth defect. Thus, it follows that the common population of Israel is also under this ideal holiness pattern of having no deformities or defects. And therefore, while a Hebrew who does have a scar or a burn or a birth defect certainly isn't penalized by the Lord and is no less holy than any other common Israelite for having it, They certainly are not to go about and intentionally create a defect by scarring or disfiguring themselves in any way. That's the principle behind this. Now with this short paragraph concerning holiness in mourning completed, verse 3 begins a longer section of dealing with diet. Or better, the required holiness of the Israelite diet. And central to this is the definition of acceptable versus prohibited foods. Clean versus unclean. In fact, from a Hebrew viewpoint, that which is prohibited is not even considered food. In other words, there is food on the one hand, and then there are eh, edible things on the other hand, but for Israel it's not food. This is a type of thinking that's important for us to grasp when we read the Bible, Old Testament or New, as it concerns what a Hebrew can eat and what he can't. The Hebrew sages point out that the concept of God putting boundaries around what a Hebrew can eat as food begins all the way back in Genesis 2. When Adam and Eve are told that they can eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, without restriction, except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'd like to point out a principle revealed here that we haven't talked about in quite some time, but it's worth reviewing. And it is that up until Yehovah instructed Adam and Eve not to eat of that certain tree, there were no rules laid down by God that we're aware of. Let me say that again. When Adam and Eve were first created, no moral laws or civil laws or rules of any kind existed for them. It is instructive for us that the very first law that God did ordain for them and for the world concerned food. What this means in our modern vocabulary is that up until the moment that God said not to eat that one fruit from that one tree, sinning was utterly impossible for the first couple. Without a law from God to break, and breaking a law of God is by definition sin, 
How could they commit a sin? Answer, they couldn't. But once the Lord gave the command to Adam and Eve, restricting the eating of fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, sin could now occur. Why? Because there was finally a rule to break. Adam and Eve essentially had a Torah that contained one law. And they couldn't wait to break it. I mean this seriously. I am convinced that until that law was set in place, Adam and Eve had no idea that there was even such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil, obedience to God, sin. They didn't know. The concepts of evil and wrong and sin had no meaning to them and have no meaning for us unless a line is drawn between something that's acceptable to God and something that's not. Now, although this is a little bit of a detour, I'd like to make a couple of observations that will be helpful in understanding why things are the way they are concerning mankind in sin. So I need you to just now put your Bibles down for the evening, look up at me, and follow me because this isn't going to be an easiest thing to, to comprehend. We are all born with two inclinations in our souls. The good inclination and the evil inclination. The propensity to do good, the propensity to do evil. These two inclinations are what together forms our will. Adam and Eve were created with the good inclination and the evil inclination, just as we are. If they weren't formed with those two inclinations, then they would have not had wills. They would have been robots. What's the purpose of a will? The will is that component of a human that makes moral choices. What's a moral choice? Moral is defined in the Bible as meaning something that is in line with God's character and His will. So a moral choice is whereby we choose to align our decisions for or against God's will. When we make a moral choice that is in line with God's will, that's called obedience. When we make a moral choice to go against God's will, that's called sin. Therefore, even though Adam and Eve were created without sin, they were created with the abilities to make a moral choice. But until God announced that they were not to eat of that one tree, they hadn't had any moral choices to make. Therefore, sinning was a practical impossibility for them up to that point. Can you see that? A will is completely inoperable without any moral choices to make. God's laws provide for those moral choices. 
But in addition to moral choices, mankind has a second, an entirely different category of choice available to us. And I choose to use, uh, choose to use the term preferences. Preferences are things like preferring red to yellow, apples to bananas, chocolate over vanilla every time. Um, <clears throat> Did I just give something away? Or choosing to drive a Buick instead of a Honda. Or wearing a long sleeve shirt instead of a short sleeve shirt. Preferences are things that allow us freedoms. Whereby good and evil aren't involved. And therefore obedience versus sin are not involved. The function of the human will is not to make preferences. The human will is that part of us that makes moral choices. Here's the thing I'd like you to try and envision. There are two realms. Two categories of choice for for mankind. Moral choice and preference. God has divided and separated these two realms. These two dots here are very close together, but in reality they're as far from each other as the east is from the west. Okay. In the realm of moral choice, the realm that deals with our wills, the Lord has laid down detailed parameters and boundaries in the Torah. Within the Torah are laws and commands, the things that detail those parameters and boundaries. Usually they're in the form of God's do's and don'ts. It's where we're going to find good and evil, right and wrong. These things are all set down for us. We don't have to guess about it. This is where God's sovereignty reigns, and it's untouchable, it's inalterable. The Bible does not generally deal with preferences other than to make it clear that those choices outside of the moral choices falls into the realm of preferences. The liberties and freedoms talked about so much in the New Testament are in this realm of preferences, not in the realm of moral choices. We must never think that A, there are no rules and laws for a believer. And B, that therefore everything for us now is just preferences. Because if we believe that, we're saying that morality no longer exists for the disciples of Christ. It doesn't even exist for us anymore. That Christians and Messianics currently live, you and me, in the same state that Adam and Eve lived before God gave them that command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's just plain scriptural error to even contemplate it. Here's the rub. What mankind has done forever and is doing so at an unprecedented rate today, is attempting to remove items from the realm of moral choice 
and place them over instead into the realm of preference. Remember, the realm of moral choice is governed by God, His will, His laws, His commands. The realm of preference has been given for man to choose among. He can choose things which have no divine law created and therefore right and wrong don't even come into play in our preferences. By way of example, God's explicit commandment against homosexuality is today being moved in Western society from the realm of moral choice into the realm of preference. Is it not? We're moving it from the realm of morality, of right and wrong, of good and evil, into the realm of human preference, where right and wrong are of no issue. There is no right, there is no wrong to it. This sleight of hand is not only dangerous, it's rebellion against the Lord at the highest level. What authority has man to tell God that we hereby decide, God, that what you used to have as a moral choice, we now make it as our preference? Just thought we'd let you know. How dare we say that his definition of good and evil doesn't even apply to so many things in our lives, even though he says it does? This movement of choices out of God's realm into man's permitted realm of preferences is at the heart of man's rebellion against him. Church, I'm afraid that we are responsible for bringing this apostasy about and we've got to turn back from it. The day the church declared there is no law is the day we prematurely abolished the realm of moral choice and we transferred it all into the realm of preference. The day that Christianity believed the lie of all the ages and said that Jesus came to abolish the law, essentially abolishing all basis for moral choice, is the day the church declared total freedom from moral choice. And it has led us down the garden path to a place of moral relativity, decadence, tolerance for sin, and absolute confusion. Too often, modern denominational doctrines have declared that what salvation actually saves us from is the divine law itself. That's a terrible error. Salvation saves us from the consequences of violating the divine law. And what other definition of sin is there other than sin is the violation of God's laws and commands. Somebody got another one? Further, if Jesus came to abolish the law, if His presence on earth abolished the law, then why would we need to be saved from our sins since only with the law there can even be sin? Without law, With law there is sin. Without law, there can be no sin. There's nothing to violate. 
We've already established that. If Yeshua's presence abolished the law, then there was no need for Him to go to the cross. Because there wouldn't be any sins necessary for Him to atone for. All moral choice was taken care of. It's gone. We solved the problem. We hear about this today. There's a big movement, is there not, to get rid of all laws against drugs. No more such thing as illegal drugs. Why? Eh, get rid of the law, there's no more violation. Not uh, true. What a unique way. That is the claim from the mainstream church today as what Jesus did. He said, hey, i got a neat idea. I know how to stop making you sin. We'll just get rid of the law. Then there's nothing to violate. Do what you want. See, this principle that I'm stating to you is fully validated by none other than St. Paul. And it has been, for most people, one of the most cryptic and difficult statements of his many cryptic and difficult statements. Romans 4.13, Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither can there be violation. I think I agree with Paul on that. See, the first half of this statement is pretty well understood and I agree with the consensus meaning of it. It is that no one is saved by means of the law. Rather, salvation comes by means of faith in Messiah Yeshua. That's it. But the law was never a document meant to save anybody. That wasn't its purpose. I have over the years heard some of the most imaginative, to put it politely, sermons on the second half of Paul's statement that I just read you that says, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Coupled with some other verses and other of Paul's letters, this is one of the key passages that many Christian pastors have used to argue that the law is inherently bad, and therefore with the advent of Jesus Christ, the law is abolished and there are no laws. For Christians to follow, we have no further moral choices to make. That is in no way what Paul is saying here. Rather it is that the principle that I just covered with you, whereby the only way that sin, which is violation of the law, ever ceases to exist, is when God's laws cease to exist. Even if there's but one law remaining, there will be a violation of it. We've already seen it all the way back in Genesis. Just as an Adam and Eve demonstrated by violating their one law, Torah. Don't eat the fruit. Goodness, the brand new believer instinctively understands that regardless of one's stance on the Mosaic law, we Christians do have rules and boundaries. Set down by God. Are we now free to murder? Are we now free to lie and steal and cheat and commit adultery? Well, 
Even the most immature believers know that when we cross those boundaries and violate those rules of God, we have sinned against Him. So maybe the better question for us is, will that ever stop? Well, I have good news for you. The Bible answers that question of when sin ceases to be an issue. And the answer to that question is also contained in that definitive statement of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5:17 through 19 when he says in Matthew 5:18, "For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, not until all's accomplished." This statement about heaven and earth passing away is literal. And it is the key. When the existing heaven and earth, heavens and earth pass away, as we're told it will, and when the world is made completely anew at the end of that thousand year reign of Messiah, then conditions will once again be similar to the state of creation. After Adam and Eve were created, but before Adam and Eve were given their very first Rule, don't eat that fruit. So now we know. Only when the new heavens and new earth are created will the Torah and its laws cease to exist. Just like Jesus said. Only then will there be no laws. No more moral choices set before us. No more possibility, even, of sin. Okay, let's stop there for today and we'll look more closely at that kosher food list next week.